Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Welcome to the Microbial Bioinformatics Podcast. Lee and I are your co-hosts for today, and we're again navigating the practicalities of bacterial taxonomy. And we have some excellent guides joining us again. Our guests today are Dr. Layton, who is a Stractide Chancellor's Fellow at the Stractide Institute of Pharmacy and Biomedical Sciences in the University of Stractide. Dr. Connor Meehan, who is an Assistant Professor in Molecular Microbiology at the University of Bradford. So welcome to you both. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Reference. It's been a while. Uh, so we were discussing last time a lot of the theoretical and almost philosophical issues around bacterial taxonomy. I think this episode would be good to dip into some of the more practical problems it is when we take taxonomy, as we previously described, as something that is born out of antiquity almost, and then how do we integrate that back in or with genomics and what we're learning from genomics data, which often is at odds with the classical taxonomy taxonomic definitions. So I think what one of the first questions is, GTDB is incredibly popular. Donovan Parks is the one who drives a lot of that, who was a PhD student when I was the postdoc working with Ford. So all of our taxonomy stuff comes from all these kind of discussions with Ford Doodle and stuff. And then that's been an amazing amount of work that goes behind that. And it just got updated. I think it's like now it's it's defined as a database, not just as a concept, that this is something that will now be continuing on, as you say, potentially a new paradigm. I think GTDB is, I would say it's the first big working effective and widely used sign of where things are going in terms of whole genome classification it, it is you know it's, it's a new paradigm genomes being the the maximum amount of, of useful quantitative information that you can get from all of the heritable material and as we were discussing last time where we don't have phenotype or morphological information or any other characteristics to go off we ha- we only have genomes we have to find a genome based way of classifying and identifying organisms and gtdb is right at the forefront of that what's the what's the secret sauce here like what has it done differently in its definition so it it may not be the first but it's definitely the the most widely seen of where it's not trying to go back to that biochemical dna dna hybridization and try to find something that goes it says here are the genomes let me build a tree based on these core proteins that are present in all of these genomes and then let me define some rank that go in there so we have obviously the phylum and the class etc that are in there and it uses this normalization to try to say in general we see this split in the tree is at this genus level that we've called a red red and all the splits that are at this distance from the root we're going to call them a genus and all the ones that are this distance from the root we're going to call them a family and so it, it's a normalization way that is expandable that you can add in extra things and it'll give you what that ranking is now what it turns out most of the genera that were there fit within that and most of the families that were in there do fit within that so actually whatever we were doing before 
in terms of defining it has some basis in genomes and some basis in phylogeny. So this is really a phylogenetic-based taxonomy instead of trying to always relate it back to a phenotypic-based taxonomy. I think it's moving away from the nomenclature as well in a really useful way. So one of the things that comes up in presentations I've seen is that of, of all the taxa in GTDB, about 80% don't have valid names. And GTDB is kind of notorious for having reclassified some organisms and produced names that didn't follow the nomenclature and the uh, prokaryotic code because causing a few arguments was one of those. Now, thankfully, when the, the mycobacteria was split in five, the GTDB said it should all be one, and that was front and center on my paper. Well, I'm glad they could resolve it in that case. Yeah, that was good. But there, there are some other ones I can't remember exactly, but definitely where they split it, and not everybody was happy about that split, where it was, it comes back to the usefulness versus the, the biological quote-unquote truth. And the use of Latin as well, going back to the historical overview of it, the nomenclature. So, some of the Latin derivations of the names were different to those that would have been used across the prokaryotic code. And I think GTDB is, is a useful and welcome step away from having nomenclature govern what's acceptable in terms of taxonomy. I think we're only going to move further in that direction. Yes. But how do you feel about the sticking with phylum order class genus? Because I would have thought that with the huge amount of genomic information we have, we could look for where the natural breaks and discontinuities are. We don't need to be constrained by that old set of taxonomy. So I, I think that's where it's going to go. What the GTDB allows is for a lot of meta-analysis for people who want to ask those kind of questions in the phylogenies. You know, you're, I'm thinking about like Tom Williams and, and doing those kind of like, what does it mean to be a phylum? And now you have all the data that's out there and then you can really define them. And then it's a, where is taxonomy useful? And where is this something where evolution took a turn and that turn was not reversible and that has defined this group in some way. So I don't know what's going to happen with that, but I'm not clever enough to do those papers, but I look forward to reading them and then going, oh, that was really simple. So in, in terms of those higher ranks, what is interesting that I think a lot of people don't know is that because it's, it's my first lecture in introductory microbiology is taxonomy. And I say, these are the ranks. So everyone takes it as gospel. But the definitions of those ranks is not a definition. The official definition of genus is it is the rank above species and the rank below family. And that's it. There is no other way that it is defined. But if we think often when people say a certain genus name, those that work in it go, oh, clearly it's because it has this. Its cell wall is this way, or it has this set of processes or infects these certain things or lives in these certain environments. But that's, you know, that there is some kind of potential rank and grouping that's there. But whether it's a sampling bias and we haven't just sampled everything around it, which we see much more in virology, or whether there truly is a biological separation of these ranks, I think is still to be seen. That's a great point. All, all of those all classifications, well, many of them, are based on a real undersampling of what we now know the biological diversity is. And so to have those set in stone and define where subsequent classifications as we sequence these organisms go, I, I think it's probably something we, we could revise usefully. And having, I keep raising the point, but having a qualitative approach to this and having, having those kinds of categories for organising how we look at genes, distinct from how we refer to them in terms of cases like E. coli versus Shigella, where we have this societal need for clear, distinct names that mean something for real purposes, whether it's pathogenicity or whether it's utility in an industrial context. I, I think it's fine to have those parallel schemes, but we, we need to not be beholden to the nomenclature. Am I saying that too much? Every time you mention it, take a drink. For those of you listening at home. 
It's all so, great. I am not getting drunk. So in theory, since we're going to talk more technical on this one and not go back too much into the, the philosophy of it, yeah. what the GTDB and, and a lot of other people are doing is trying to give a technical way to at least define what we see and to be disputed. So a lot of work has been done on defining a species. Um, and the way that it really is done probably by most people now is you have all of the species that are out there. You have your new genome that you think is the type for what you're working on. You calculate the A and I, the average nucleotide identity between them. There is not just one way to calculate that. There is fast A and I and other ones that will give you slightly different, but almost the same answers. And then if it's 95% or above, it's the same species and it's lower than that, it's not. We tend to give it a little bit of a 94 to 96. And in theory, a subspecies is 98. It's not always kept that way, but that is one way to do it. There have been A and I barriers that have then been created for the other ranks they don't hold anywhere near as well they, there's a lot of overlap even part of that is because the genera are all defined differently and part of that is because it just a nucleotide identity when you have back transitions doesn't hold up the further back in evolutionary history you go because of your back mutation issues that we spoke about on the genetics podcast that you can go back and listen to even in identifying homologous regions, which is most of the time what you're doing with, with ANI, there's this kind of a limit of 70 to 80% identity for any pair of aligned homologous regions. Just algorithmically, you, can, you can't detect distinction from random identities lower than that. So one of the things you can use to get around that is coverage. So what you're looking for, very similar homologous regions, but you're looking for how much of each genome is covered. And one of the things that seems to arise from that is that you can get quite high ANI scores so percent identity, but you get quite low coverage values of 30% or below, which seems to be a reasonable way to distinguish between members of the same genus and members of the same species. So you're looking for high ANI identity, but you're looking at relatively low coverage. As a rule of thumb, I tend to use 50% because if you're sharing less than half of your heritable material, maybe you're sharing more than half with something else that isn't in this comparison. So I tend to be fairly conservative about that as a rule of thumb. But there's a really good paper out, I'm forgetting the author, I should probably look that up, where they looked at a number of different groups and what's it, ANI identity and coverage. And depending on the groups, somewhere between 30 and 50% coverage seemed to be a, a good delineator of same genus but not the same species. So as I said, a lot of work has been done on the species level and now work is being started to done on the genus level. I, so that's been something I've been working more on because in mycobacteria, as we spoke about in the last one, it got split into five different genera. And most people, this had been done by some authors in other groups, but then they, they touched a group that's special to a lot of people which is the mycobacteria, because of the amount of clinically important strains that are in there. And it's kind of seen as being one of the most clonally, it doesn't have a combination, kind of everyone's like, how is this not a genus? This is one of the definitions of genus that we use because it's defined by this mycolic acid cell wall. It's very clearly separate from all the things that are around it. And it splits up when you can use something like average amino acid identity, the amino acid equivalent of ANI, AAI. But the difficulty is that there's not a lot of other ways to define the genus, but now people are really working on this. So Roman Barco had a great one that we used in our paper for showing that it was one genus, where you have the average nucleotide identity and the alignment fraction between things that are bidirectional 
best hits. So you're essentially using Blast to say these two things are equivalent. And then what is that alignment fraction between the two of them? And then you can kind of create this inflection point on your XY graph of ANI alignment fraction. And that tends to say, you, you do that to the type species and then for the genus. And then you say, if it's closer to that one and further from the type species for a different genus, it's probably all one genus. So we've got very good technical things coming in for species that's moving up towards genus, but nothing is really above apart from the GTTB way to go family and above. But hopefully we will, people will start looking at that more now that we have the genomes and we can do some interesting things around that. I think this speaks to a, a general trend as well, which is that when, when we look at ANI and, and other measures and we have these threshold cutoffs, 94 to 96% identity, I think all of these single measures, not adequate really to describe the distinctions between species and other groups and moving to a combination of identity and alignment fractional coverage is one way to to move towards two measures in ANI but having the mycotic cell wall taking multiple gene trees and looking to see where the consensus is for sort of last common ancestor with it for multiple genes, not looking at a multi-gene tree where you concatenated the sequences, but looking at them individually. All of these lines of evidence are useful to help support or refute the assertion of a species boundary on the basis of ANI or, or some similar single measure. And, and I think that for robust species classifications, we're going to have to take those approaches. Obviously, we can't do that for the complete set of sequence genomes, so we're still going to have a, a bit of conflict, even if we do go forward to a completely qualitative and computational way of classifying these organisms. I want to change tack a bit now that we've been talking about the complexities of going species and above. Let's, let's talk about species and below. Simple things like how do we then define a strain, what is a strain versus an isolate versus a culture versus a variant versus a lineage? Are, are these something that we can define and we can talk about? I get in trouble for using strain and isolate interchangeably in my papers by the other authors on those papers. So it so definitely is not, it's not an easy topic. What I will say is taxonomically, officially, if we go back to official, there is no definition below species apart from subspecies. And even then that's quite dicey. But the term variant or lineage has no official nomenclature standing. Anybody can create a variant. Anybody can create a lineage. So it's more about trying to decide on what it is that you're trying to convey with that. Isolate tends to mean we took this and we sequenced it directly from the sample. So the sample is from the soil, let's say, and then the isolate is exactly what you did really without culturing it in between. And then the strain is what came from that isolate potentially when it was cultured. That's one way of thinking about it. And I'm sure there's many people who are listening will be like, that's not how I would define And like, that's also sure the difficulty there is. Please add us on Twitter. <laughs> Just go for it. Let's start a claim more on it. To be internally consistent, I try to use it that way clinically. I was saying this is directly what came from the patient and then this strain is is what we've been using that maybe is a laboratory strain. But people also define strains as like wild type strain as these are susceptible and related or they share some kind of virulence pattern and are related. So the word strain is often the difficulty. I think people kind of know what they mean when they say isolate and they kind of know what they mean when they say lineage and then strain is used in both of these places. At certain conversations I've, I've heard it used not necessarily interchangeably but differently by different people as well as there being no real taxonomic definition it's not formal definition I, I don't think everybody uses it entirely consistently but I think I've got the same kind of general feeling the same sort of head cannon, Connor, that the isolate is that the physical thing that you took as a sample 
to some extent and that you sequence and that the strain is what the, the lineage that comes from that the everything that shares it as a common ancestor so if you've got a strain in the fridge or the freezer then what you sequence 20 years later is possibly not what was originally in there so you're sequencing that strain but you're not necessarily sequencing the isolate which was the physical sample that you took from the field or the plant 20 years ago and i tend to try to avoid the word variant as much as i can just because we use we use variant to mean mutation at the same time and there's already enough confusion between a, a variant and a mutation in terms of that technicality that then trying to use variant for the whole it, thing it's interesting having lived to COVID and then being involved with the COVID analysis and seeing the, the evolution of the term variant because it's like, yeah, any, anything with a single step different, that's a variant, right? But some variants are more variant than others. Like, you know, they're the same, but they're not the same because then you're interested, well, then with which, which ones should we be concerned about? Variants of concern, variants of interest. And now we've got this tiered level of how panic should, should we be about every given variant. So I, I would tend to avoid using the word variant now in the same way I would have tend to avoid using the word pandemic because I'm simply sick of hearing. Yeah, so I mean, viral taxonomy is a whole separate thing that we could talk about for a long time. And I'm definitely not an expert. There are people at the quadrum, especially who are much better at that. It used to be this term subtype that was used. If people work in HIV, there are a lot of subtypes of HIV. And then that term is kind of no longer being used because then it was it was circulating subtypes and circulating recombinant subtypes and all of these kind of things. And virology they've moved then towards variant. And I think now with with our, with our SARS, people are moving more towards the term lineage. And in bacteria, there's also a move towards the term lineage. How I often like to think of a lineage is, if we look back at this in a million or two million years, we'd say that's where the species came. There was enough of a separation going on that I can trace that back to what was a lineage inside one species at some time. There should be some kind of difference that I that we care about that is a monophyletic grouping on the phylogenetic tree, but also has something that differentiates it from everything else in terms of its virulence, in terms of its ecotype or infecting, whether it's host range or, or environments or something like that. But it should have something that you can define outside of a set of SNPs. And virology taxonomy is really leading the front with that kind of thing because they evolve so quickly that they get lineages. They get multiple lineages in a year, as we've seen, whereas for bacteria, you're waiting thousands of years for these kind of things to really come apart enough. And then obviously, if you're coming from salmonella, you've got virus. And what does that mean in relation to a lineage in relation to phylogenetics? And it can get more complex there, for sure. I'm certainly no expert on viral taxonomy, but watching what's been happening with COVID has been fascinating. And it's really affected the way I think about how we should approach bacterial classification and, and nomenclature. It's, as, as you say, really compressing what we see in bacteria into a very short time scale and the direct analogies to be drawn in terms of lineages and what really counts as being distinct, which has changed what I think. And we've seen that in the pandemic of, as you say, we started out with variants of concern, but then using the word variant is so close to the variation that people then just got freaked out when any variation occurred. And then you're trying to get into an evolutionary background of like, oh, but is it due to selection pressure or genetic drift? And then media is like, I don't care about any of that. Tell me whether I should be like in a lockdown again. A lineage should be generally because there's pressure and in terms of, of selection that's occurring there. And we see that now with the alpha and the beta and the delta. And we see that with bacterial lineages where there is some separation and virulence normally within a species. But taxonomically, it's not defined yet because it's really dependent on what you care about inside of that species and what should be reported to the clinician or the environmental 
officer or something that you need to care about this or like you said to us before with the stereo the opposite direction where you actually want to be grouping a lot more things together because we care if it's any of these things we don't want to go down to the minute level we actually want to care about the thing that causes the disease no matter where it comes from could you just contextualize the listeria uh, story you were telling us earlier that was probably uh, before we started recording but this discussion in terms of, in, in the context of public health, which is all things for me. But I mean, when you look at listeria, I think it has an ANI of like 92% across all lineages. It has four different lineages, one through four. Lineages one and two are more associated with disease with people. Three and four are associated with animals. And even though three and four cause way less disease in people, it's still all grouped together. And that's, I would say that's probably, primarily because of regulatory efforts. If you find anyone listeria in food, then it's been subject to recall and, and public health actions, probably the same over there in, in UK. And, and, it, and it just, it makes me think, okay, we have, we have an academic versus a pragmatic definition. We have an academic definition of around you know, 94 to 96%. I like how you have a little wiggle room, as you said before, versus 92% uh, across this species. But pragmatically, it's it's for the greater good to make sure that we just don't have listeria in our food. And a lot of taxonomy comes down to that pragmatic. And now I think people are trying to come at it from a biological point of view. But where I think a lot of taxonomists often sit now is saying, okay, I know you want to destroy the system and put in a new system, but for a lot of people, their entire living depends on knowing this system very quickly, being able to regulate it and all that. And I know I come back to mycobacteria a lot, but one of the reasons that we did the genus paper was because we were contacted. One, we were the mycobacterial collection. Did we have to now change our name to be the mycobacteria and the mycobacterioides? But it also was the diagnostic tools that are used by Public Health England, by the CDC. They say that they detect mycobacteria. And if they no longer detect mycobacteria, but actually detect five genera, did they have to spend, did these companies have to spend thousands in regulatory ones to have the inserts of their products changed? So it came down to, we did that for a biological reason, because I was like, this is not right. But really, it's driven by a pragmatic reason of, but do we have to change regulations to say that this is no longer this? And that has huge, wide-ranging implications. Yeah, there are essentially three branches of taxonomy. There's classification, there's nomenclature, and then there's identification, which is where legislation meets taxonomy and not just in terms of the validation demonstration of test accuracy they bring up but also trying to get new legislation through if organism names change changing policy is a slow process changing legislation is slower on most occasions if you needed to put into law that you suddenly needed to quarantine all imports of potatoes that contained these five genera instead of this single genus it would take quite a long time and during that time you're at risk of introducing a number of uh, phytosanitary threats so the, the the very practical and applied nature of taxonomy really comes out with that legislation and also when you talk about public health as well it reminded me of pathovars which we use to discriminate below species level in uh, pathogens which reflect the susceptibility or otherwise a plants on exposure to the pathogen. And that might be mediated by the presence or absence of a single effect that gets detected by the, the host plant. And there really is no great genomic distinction. Certainly you call these organisms the same species, but they might differ quite drastically in terms of where they cause disease. Historically, they've been classified as pathovars and considered to be different. And they represent different threats. 
and we, we need a, a scheme that accommodates that and allows us to, to name them clearly so that we can structure legislation and the societal effects of those organisms. So the, I don't want to belabor the point too much, but the example I always give about taxonomy when it's like nobody cares until they care. And the example I give normally is the polar bear and the brown bear to everybody are very, very different bears. And this has massive wide ranging because the polar bear is protected and the brown bear is not protected. They are the same species. And recently it was shown that they are the same species. But if you do that, and this was nearly caught on by governments, they were like, oh, so then we don't have to protect the polar bear and all the money that we put into it because it's no longer a species to be protected because it's now part of the brown bear so it's fine so it's nobody cares until they care very much so that the polar bear was just going to potentially lose all of its protection because some it was decided that taxonomically then they're different so it's it's an area where the, the technicality to come back to what we're talking about here the technicality is really coming along of how we define it but we're trying to bring along with that an insurance that it doesn't override the practicality technicality needs to support the practicality in both directions and if we come back to, to covid obviously the the lineages are very different in terms of epidemiology but in terms of public health one could argue that they're the same we should be doing the same things to protect ourselves from alpha that we do from delta which is mask wearing etc cetera, etc cetera. but people think of them now as completely separate things people think of covid in 2019 and covid now as not being the same thing at all and that's really about the taxonomy because we've said delta we don't call it SARS, COVID, we call it COVID and we call it Delta. It's, it's still the same thing and we should be applying it in the same way. So technically how we define these lineages, I think is going to become some a big area of research going forward because now we really see in public health how those definitions can have very wide ranging impacts. I, I want to change tack if that's okay, since we're talking yeah. different technicalities. I want to talk about some of the tools that people can use to apply taxonomic principles to their genomics for bacterial genomes. We've touched on ANI and we've touched on AAI, so average nucleotide identity, average amino acid identity. What else is out there? Well, there's more than one version of ANI and it, it does matter which you use because they can give different results. And if you're applying a threshold, they, they can put you one side or other of that threshold. There's, there's digital DDH as well, which is actually worth discussing in the context of ANI because there are, there are some limitations to both of those approaches which, which they have in common. So digital DDH was intended to essentially model actual in vitro DNA DNA hybridization. So if you go to the GGSC site, put your genome in, it will go through a model which was fitted to outputs from DNA DNA hybridization. One of the problems with doing that, in my view, is that when you compare outputs from in vitro DNA DNA hybridization and you look at the actual level of genome identity in the pairwise comparison, there isn't a strong mapping. You can fit a, a straight line through it, but it's got quite a lot of variation, particularly at the lower end. And if you're at 70% DDH from the in vitro measurement, you could still be up at 95% genome identity when you do the pairwise comparisons. So fitting a model to try and predict to me always seems like trying to hit a very broad target and people tend to take individual single numbers that they get from a computational tool and, and believe that that number is accurate. Now, a lot of the time it does give you values which are in line with what you get from other methods like ANI, but I've, I'm always a little cautious about using it because there isn't this strong relationship, there's a strong mapping between DDH and ANI. ANI-B, versions of ANI that use BLAST, try to emulate 
DNA-DNA hybridization in a similar way. But what they do is they, they fragment the genomes that you're trying to compare. So they chop them up into arbitrary sections. Usually, it's if you follow the original paper, it's fragments of about a thousand nucleotides. And they look for homologous regions between the query and the subject genome, but they're looking for a minimum match along the length of the which means that you could be losing some information about homologous regions when you make your comparison. This results in a difference between the ANIB approach using BLAST and the ANIM approach, which uses MUMA and tries to identify the maximal homologous regions, particularly when you get down to lower percentage identities. Above 95%, they're usually very close, so not really that important but the further you get away and you're trying to look at distinctions that are beyond species level and it just starts to matter more and then fast ani is an attempt to approximate average nucle average nucleotide identity calculations which are obtained by pairwise alignment using camera approaches and minhash they do really good approximations incredibly quickly but it's often difficult to get coverage information back and you can't see exactly which bits are aligning and if you've got a small set of genomes sometimes it's useful to just have the alignments there so you can go and look at them and see what's contributing to this similarity and if that's phenotypically or functionally important for you in, in your studies i was just going to say there's a lot to unpack there especially if you're a student starting out and you're trying to get to on top of these tools i mean those tools are definitely when you want to do taxonomy work of defining things then there is a whole suite that's in there and the, the nuances are in there and obviously phylogenetics plays a large part in there as well but i would say most people when they think of taxonomy these days it's i have my metagenome my metagenomic sample and i want to get the taxonomy of what's in there so practical taxonomy these days is centrifuge mash like trying to say what is it and what do i care you know mlst and all of these things i want to put a label on what my sample is and then i want to know what that label differs between these two different things so practical taxonomy is taking all of these genomes that somebody else has put labels to and then finding out which of those labels should be applied to your sample and i guess what myself and Leighton work on is trying to make sure that the labels that are coming at the top are the right labels that are going to come down to you and and making sure that all makes some kind of sense so that you can say that well i see this strain lineage species genus here and i don't see it here and that means something but really when most people are doing taxonomy they're running chime and certain such tools like that and i think in the last couple of minutes just wanted to ask about how your both your views on moving away i suppose from traditional taxonomy but more to just a simple nomenclature problem of how do you define clusters and define groups that you can describe to other people and do it in a systematic way. This comes back to kind of what GTDB is doing for doing for all microbes, but then what about within a species? I'm interested particularly in the work with Genome Archive, which is a whole genome database for classifying microbes. And it reminds me a lot of PHE's SNP address system, where in both cases you have this sort of threshold, and then based on whether something was similar at that threshold, it would have the same identifier. And so something that shared a lot of different numbers would be closer, to, more closely related. Something that shared a lot of identifiers would be less closely related. Did I say that the right way around? And it reminds me of, the, and then I'm going to throw in CGMST because I love CGMST. It has a similar sort of process there that you can make distinct classifications based on that. Oh, how do you both, how do you, three of you feel about these tools and what's your experience? When I describe the work that I do, I often say, oh, I work on epidemiology and I work on taxonomy and I work on these different things. The reality is that I like to cluster things. And then when it's when it's transmissions that I'm clustering, they call it epidemiology. 
And when it's everything above that, then people now say I'm a taxonomist. But it's it's essentially the same thing. I'm When I'm doing my epidemiology, I'm trying to look for clusters that are meaningful and separate from other things that has an actionable thing at the end. Is this transmission cluster in this place and it is different from this transmission cluster in this other place and therefore we can say something about that. But epidemiology is just a public health version of taxonomy, there I said it. But if you enjoy working on defining different clusters, then you're essentially doing some kind of taxonomy with data set that you're working on. And then every and then it's just about what's useful. So the SNP address works really well because everybody knows what they mean when they say that. And when I say transmission cluster, everyone kind of knows what I mean by I say that. I say how it's defined, but then once I've defined it and everyone agrees that the way I've defined it is a valid way to define it, then we can just move on with our lives. So it's just about creating a nomenclature that's going to work. And it just happens that the binomial system is the one that is taught at the university level. So we're all ingrained into us to have that as researchers. But I think the rise of MLST and especially CG MLST is is defining the taxonomy of epidemiology, which is what we're kind of doing a little bit more now. Of What does that mean? And then that grows somewhere into a lineage. And that's where these two things collide, where epidemiologically we've defined these lineages. Honestly, they're transmission clusters that have grown around the world. And now we've decided to put what we think of as a classic taxonomic label onto that. And it's all just a spectrum. Yeah. What we're trying to do with uh, Genome Archive is, is really what Colin was describing in terms of having that framework for where you can identify a location for your genome or set of sequences that you've ob obtained from your sample. It's one of many possible and, and valid and, and useful frameworks. And it's, it's, uh, it's grown out of LINs, life identification numbers, which were proposed by Boris Vinatza and Lenwood Heath, who are both at Virginia Tech. And it's, the, the way I think of it is that it's a hierarchical subdivision of genome space. You've got this abstract space, and every individual genome is a point in that space and is in some way addressable. And what we're trying to do is define volumes of space that enclose these genomes. So you can say which genomes are in which space. So we have a label for those spaces. And you can kind of think of it as building a tree on the basis of a distance measure. So as a as a first pass, you could use ANI and calculate ANI distances and produce a distance tree. If you light on its side, so you've got your root on the left and you've got your leaves on the right, you can then put an x-axis in and take vertical lines which partition the tree at various points between the root and the leaf. And we can label those A, B, C, D, and so on and so on. And each of those partitions, you can then count from the top down to the bottom the number of individual groups. You can label those 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, and so on. But keeping in mind what the last classification was just off to the left. It's, it's difficult to show without a whiteboard. I really want a whiteboard to show this. But essentially what it gives is, is a unique index at a number of levels between the root of your tree and the leaves of the tree, where you can define essentially a, a place in the tree and, and label that consistently. That maps onto this sort of abstract space where you've got each genome as a point, where these individual labels don't describe locations on the tree, but they, they now describe like voxels, if you remember, sort of like graphics and computer games. So every voxel has its own label, and within that, each of the subgroups, voxels, 
has its own label and so on. And it drills down until you get down to an individual, or at least indistinguishable genomes. And this makes it very much like a, a map grid reference, like, like an OS map. So if you had a, a label like, say, that, that contains 15,000 genomes, that's like a big sort of grid that covers a country or, or a city. And if you drill down further over to the right, you end up four, and you're getting closer and closer to individual streets, and you're gradually grouping things which are closely similar and excluding things which are not quite as, as similar. In terms of the distance measure that you started out with, one of the issues that we have with that technically is going from the, the root of a bacterial tree, where we can't reach that with ANI, as we talked about, getting to the leaves, which we can't reach with ANI because you end up not being able to distinguish between individuals that are distinguished by single SNPs or you've got really closely related lineages in, in an outbreak. So what we're trying to do is take multiple distance measure, measures and, and match them up so that these hierarchies are consistent. And we can use things like split camers down at the leaf end for outbreaks, and we can use AAI at the, at the root end for sort of file on the order level distinctions. And one of the ways I like to think about it is that it's, it's sort of a Rosetta Stone and a neutral reference. It's like when you're looking at a map of, say, a, a disputed border like between England and Wales, that's shifted over history. But every point on that border has existed throughout the history where it's moved more towards Wales, more towards England. So you could take that point and a period of time, you could say whether or not this is Wales or this is England. So it's got, for that individual label, a number of annotation states which are associated with it. So we can hang multiple different nomenclatures from the same framework reference. So we can label each of these divisions with phenotypic or host specificity or some other useful biological information that we know about. And if we have a, a volume, one of these labels, which contains genomes which all share the same characteristic, a new genome which you bring along and then finds itself in that volume, you might reasonably expect to share that characteristic. Or if the, a majority of the genomes in that volume share the character, you might expect them also to share that characteristic with the probability. And just as with grid references where, say for Manchester, you wouldn't expect a square to exactly match Manchester, you could match Manchester to an almost arbitrary degree by specifying collections of grid references of large or small size, and then grouping them together and saying, my definition of Manchester is this, and it will describe the outline of Manchester almost exactly. And I think we can do the same with voxels in this sort of genome space. So we say this species consists this label and also these other labels, and we would have a nice consistent frame of reference for that definition of that species at that point in time. And that could act as, as I say, a Rosetta Stone for translating between nomenclatures like uncode and set code and traditional binomial nomenclature and the historical references to nomenclature through literature. The, the other advantage, well, the, the Genome Archive project itself is, is trying to build this and we want to build a usable resource which is available to all and also privacy focused. So for considerations such as indigenous rights, if there's any IP that you want to protect, we want to be able to allow people to not upload the exact genome sequence, so they protect the privacy in that way, it's their rights to that organism and that sequence. So we want to have the interface such that you can process your genome locally in the browser and then the care of profile of that sequence is used to locate your organism within that space, which is something that you can really only do when you take this computational approach. It's 
Yes, it's a big and challenging project, and it's really exciting. I apologise if I don't sound quite excited enough, but <laughs> it's I'm optimistic that it's a step in the right direction for how we can consider organising genome data and relating it to all of these tensions and conflicts in the nomenclature and taxonomy and the different ways of viewing these organisms. The same way you can you can look at a tree and you can focus on the trunk or the leaves or a particular plane through the tree. There's so many ways of looking at this. This is only one of them and we think it's it's moving in the right direction. And I should say that this is just give everybody credit. It's Boris Vanatza is leading it at Virginia Tech, along with Lenwood Heath at Virginia Tech. It's uh, Davis, my part's over here at Strathmore. And what we will do is there are excellent posters for this up on Figshare, so we'll put a link to that in the show notes if people want to Thank go you. and have a look and dig into this a bit deeper. I think we're almost out of time, so I have one final question for everybody when it comes to taxonomy. Are you a lumper or a splitter? <laughs> I'm a splumper. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a binary that doesn't actually really exist. Sorry. Yeah. So sometimes lump, sometimes split. Depends. I'm, I'm quite pragmatic about these things. I might sound like I'm ideologically driven too. I think it, when it comes to taxonomy, it's more about are you a biological purist and you want only the biology to drive it, or are you pragmatic with it? And I think a lot of taxonomists are quite pragmatic of saying we should lump when it's important and we should split when it's important. Yeah. Oh, fair enough. Okay. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank our guests, Dr. Leighton Pritchard and Dr. Economy. And we've been talking about vaccine taxonomy and some of the practical genomics tools available. And we'll see you next time on the MicroBinty podcast. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at MicroBinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.